0: Welcome to the mini-break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, October 15th. Folks, I really thought there was nothing left that could happen in the professional tennis world during this 2020 season that could shock me. Of course, maybe the most shocking aspect of it all, the fact that we even got tennis back in 2020 during the midst of a global pandemic, the fact that we got to see back-to-back grand slams in the U.S. Open and the French Open play through completion, the fact that we got to see, you know, just some of the storylines, right, Rafael Nadal winning his 13th Grand Slam title, tying Federer for 20 men's single slam titles, the fact that we saw Novak Djokovic defaulted for a Grand Slam after he struck a line judge in the neck with the ball. The fact that we saw Sofia Kennan and Iga Sviantec emerge as WTA Grand Slam champions this year. I mean, there have been so many incredible stories both on and off the court in tennis. And, you know, it really did feel like, okay, maybe we have reached the threshold for shock and awe. Maybe from here on in, we can just enjoy whatever tennis we may have left and, you know, coast ourselves into the end of this 2020 season, but of course, 2020, the year that never stops, the year that keeps on offering surprises, and we have a whopper of a surprise for you listeners today. Maybe the most shocking 24 hours in this 2020 season occurring uh, since I recorded our last podcast until now, of course, we've got the story of Sam Query testing positive at the St. Petersburg event, then racing back from St. Petersburg to head home to get out of Russia before he would have been forced to quarantine for two weeks in the country. Of course, there is more nuance to that story that I will talk about as we get into today's podcast. Podcast. Of course, we also had a big COVID scare yesterday, a journalist reporting that 20 players in, I believe, Colonia tested positive, or maybe it was Sardinia, I think it was Sardinia, uh, for COVID-19. Of course, that, that uh, reporting turned out to be inaccurate, and we've talked about it before, but in the midst of a global pandemic, if you are going to be reporting something like that, you absolutely 1 billion percent have to have your facts right, and I want to talk about that story, talk about how it unfolded, the reaction to it on Tennis Twitter, all of the above. Of course, we've also got some outstanding ATP tennis for all of us fans this week. We've got three events, two 250s and one ATP 500 at the ATP and up level. Of course, we've also got two challenger events going on that I want to talk about a little bit, but the reason we're able to talk about any of this here at Cracked Rackets day in, day out on the Mini Break podcast podcast because of the support we get from our sponsors at Midwest Sports and Aero Bar. If you have any tennis equipment needs, whether it be a new racket, new strings, new shoes, new clothing, you can find it all and you can find all of the best brands with our friends at Midwest Sports. You go to MidwestSports.com, use our promo code CR15. Not only will you get 15% off your order, not only will you get free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75, but best of all, you will get that free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Go to MidwestSports.com. Dot com use that promo code CR15 of course go to aerobar.com use the promo code cracked 15 for your only 10 specific energy bar available on the market more potassium than a banana delicious cinnamon honey oat and chocolate chip flavors you never have to worry about it melting in your bag and best of all it comes with a podcast our getting to the point episodes where we talk about the importance of nutrition and fitness in the modern tennis game to support our friends Mark Aerosmith Andrew Golub. just go to to Aerobar.com, and again use that promo code cracked15 to get 15% off of your order. All right, with that in mind, let's get into an action-packed Thursday in the professional tennis world and the story I want to start with and let me provide you all the details because I'm sure that opening you may be thinking to yourself, "Wait, What happened in Russia? What happened in St. Petersburg? What happened to Sam Querrey? Let's get into that story now. And it starts as it so often does when there's a big story reported in professional tennis with our friend Ben Rothenberg, who, by the way, is going to be joining us on the podcast tomorrow to talk about the biggest stories in tennis down this 2020 season stretch. But, you know, it was about 3 p.m. on the East Coast yesterday where Ben sent out a tweet and he said, "Okay, so here's the story of Sam Querrey fleeing. Russia after testing positive for coronavirus. And shout out to you, Ben. I'm going to be reading your tweets from start to finish. Ben always knows how to paint a beautiful narrative. I think sometimes that's why people get frustrated at him. Nevertheless, going to be using his words here and his tweets. And, you know, this has been confirmed by other outlets. So, you know, whether there's some hyperbole in this, I don't believe so. But here's the general outline of the story. 49th-ranked Sam Query entered the ATP 500 St. Petersburg and was slated to face Denis Shapovalov in the first round. Before the match, however, Sam tested positive for coronavirus. So too did Sam's wife, Abby, and their eight-month-old son, Four. The three queries were instructed then to quarantine for 14 days at their hotel in St. Petersburg. As the St. Petersburg Four Seasons, which is the hotel they were staying at, is famous across the tour for being fancy as all heck. Again, there's a little Ben editorializing. This was something the query family was purportedly very ready to obligingly do. But then, Sam received an unexpected call from someone with the Russian health authorities who said that the family would be visited by a doctor, and if they were found to have symptoms, they could be forced to be hospitalized. This took the shine off the five-star moment considerably. The queries who were experiencing what they considered mild symptoms feared any or all being hospitalized in Russia, especially so given that they were traveling with their 8-month-old son from whom they did not want to be potentially separated in a foreign country. So Sam, who has worn patches from a private jet sponsor during some of the bigger matches in his career, arranged and paid for private jets to whisk the family across the Russian border away from the health authorities' reach. Sitting in the back of their hired jet so as to keep as distant as possible from pilots, the queries were delivered to what is only being described as a nearby European country, which did not require a negative test for entry. He's staying at an Airbnb in said unknown country, not wanting to further entangle local authorities in that country. The plan is for Query to keep his whereabouts undisclosed. But here's a map of the region. Again, that's just playing some speculation. Jones... You know, query. Uh, obviously, pulling this action was going to receive some sort of response from the ATP, and you know, obviously that is the case. As the ATP releases yesterday in a statement, quote: "The ATP is aware of an incident regarding a player's serious breach of quote protocol." relating to COVID-19 at this week's St. Petersburg Open. Adhering to health and safety protocols is critical to ensure safety events take place safely and within the guidelines established by local authorities. Players and their support team members are reminded that breaches of protocol can jeopardize an event's ability to operate and have repercussions on the rest of the tour. In accordance with the ATP's code of conduct, we are taking this matter extremely seriously and an investigation is underway. Now, of course, you know, there have been uh, a full statement was released from the St. Petersburg Open, which issued, again, their statement. Authorities wanted the Query family to move out of the hotel and had prepared them premium class apartments. This is the tournament story. Query once refused to open the door to the doctor. And then by the time the doctor came for the second checkup, uh, the Query family had vacated and left Russia. And now, again, there are a lot of moving pieces. There are stories in terms of, you know, there's the tournament story saying, hey, we were just trying to facilitate things. Hey, you know, of this, I guess, let's just get it all out there. A lot of this, we probably have to start with Sam Queer's perspective because A, you know, you're going from tournament to tournament, international event to international event. This was always the biggest concern with professional tennis coming back is you're exposing players because tennis is an international sport. It's played across borders, across globes. People are coming from so many different scenarios. And, you know, now at some of these events, they're letting fans into the stadium. And there was always going to be a risk that players test positive. That's why it's so important that, the safety and health protocols be in place that the ATP strictly enforced and the WTA strictly enforced that as players go from event to event and country to country. They're not only tested once they leave the prior country, but they're tested once again when they arrive at their new country. And, you know, obviously that's what happened to Sam Querrey. He was in Paris or he was at an event and now he comes to St. Petersburg. And in that process of traveling from one place to another, as so unfortunately as can happen, he and his family contracted the virus. And of course, above of all else, we are wishing all of the queries a safe and quick and you know speedy and you know safe recovery from uh covid nineteen there's also part two, which is yes, Sam query has an eight year old eight month year old son, and I would just like you, and I don't know if you're a listener of this if you're a parent, if you're a child of a parent, I know I am at my parents' home, so this rings particularly true for me if I was sick. And we were in a foreign country, my parents would say, "No matter what they would no matter what else is going on, they would say, "You are not taking Alex away from me." They would say, "We want to be with Alex at all times and I know if I had an eight month year old kid, which by the way, a scary thought for my parents if you 're listening to this mom don 't worry, no kid's on the horizon anytime soon, but I wouldn't want them to go anywhere as well. And, you know, there's some threads on tennis Twitter. Is this Russia paranoia? Is this American being biased, you know, because of all the propaganda and all the anti-Russia sentiment within the country? And. There's absolutely a degree of truth to that. The the relationship, you know, geopolitically between Russia and the United States is not at its brightest right now. And that's a conversation not for this podcast, but certainly that paranoia fueled Query's decision to get out of there because he doesn't know the St. Petersburg doctors. He doesn't know the St. Petersburg health system. He doesn't know what Russian authorities are knocking on his door or what they're gonna make he and his family do if they're gonna try and separate them. And look, that is one sense of this. You you have to Get offer sympathy for Sam Query and empathy and understand where he is coming from. He is just trying to do the most for his family, trying to ensure, again, if you have COVID-19, you know, the last thing that what you would want is to be stuck in a foreign country in an unfamiliar place with your family while you're trying to experience all of that. And so you can understand that. At the same time, this is exactly what you're not supposed to do with this coronavirus. There's a reason all of these safety and health protocols are in place. And again, I can't speak for what the ATP authorities were planning on doing. I can't speak for what the Russian health authorities were planning to doing because I'm not in on those conversations. But certainly, they were hopefully i mean you know certainly you have to imagine they were prepared for a scenario like this that there was always the chance of a positive test upon arrival for any of these players if the ATP isn't preparing for positive tests at these events that's criminally negligent because that's just atrocious planning by all these tournaments and so you have to imagine there were regulations in place and things that they wanted to do for all for the query family and you know, it's a catch 22. Like, I I really. Does Sam Query deserve to be punished because he wanted to do what was best for his family? Are you really going to punish him for that? That sounds horrible in, on paper, but then you look at the way this scenario was handed. You know, for Sam Query, again, the doctor comes to his hotel room to check his wife, his child, him for symptoms. They don't answer the door. The doctor comes the second time. By that point, the queries have already fled. And again, we will hear Sam Query talk about this story, certainly. We will get his side uh, of what happened, why he felt the urge, the inclination, the rush uh, to get out of St. Petersburg as quickly as possible. But look, if the ATP, and this is from Tumani Carriel, if the ATP deems Sam Query's protocol breach a major offense and possibly injurious to the two or which... It could be because, again, what if he would have spread that virus? He's an active carrier of the virus and he tried to leave. You can't do that. That's just fundamentally – you're not allowed to do that. So, again – if and again they called Sam Query in that statement a major offense and breach of protocol he could be fined up to 100k and or suspended from the ATP for a period of up to 3 years now you know Tumani goes on the possibility of both char- parents and child getting infected is an obvious risk of traveling in the middle of a pandemic if players are not prepared to leave their kid at home they should either make sure they have arrangements in place for that worst scenario or stay at home and to be honest I can't say I disagree with him. Now, do I think a 3-year suspension for Sam Query from the tour is a justifiable response to this? Absolutely not. If you know Sam Query, if you've gotten the chance to interact with him, interview him, hear about him, you're not going to find a nicer man on the tour. You're not going to find someone who is, you know, not only as caring about his fellow player as Sam, but someone who is just as kind-spirited as well-intentioned as Sam Query and You know, again, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. He's in an international country with his family. Heightened scare, you know, heightened frightenedness. Heightened frightenedness. Hey, great shot. Heightened paranoia is certainly on display, but this is not the last we're going to hear about this because this cannot be... This just cannot be the way players act. It can't be I'm testing positive. I'm getting out of there before adhering to any safety or health protocols because now you're just hosting super spreader events if you're professional tennis. And is that really what you want your reputation to be? Your players are testing positive for COVID and then getting out of there so fast that you can't even do anything to ensure the safety and health of the people in the communities where these tournaments are taking place? No, that's worst-case scenario for professional tennis, but – Again, we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, with Ben tomorrow. More details will emerge, but I cannot think of any comparable moment to this in my history of fandom, not only of professional tennis, but in professional sports. I mean, an athlete fleeing a country for fear of persecution. Persecution is the wrong word, but just for fear of what the health officials are going to do to he and his family. I mean, there's a reason this story got picked up by ESPN, by CNN, by all of these various outlets, because this is... (laughs) this is a ridiculous moment, not just in tennis, but honestly, there are geopolitical implications. I can't believe, I just can't believe this happened. I'm truly, truly shocked. That would be my initial reaction. Now, again, if you're asking me to take sides, I, I don't want to because I can completely understand and sympathize with Sam Queer's perspective in this moment. And yeah, there's a little bit of American bias in that. At the same time, Safety and health protocols are put in place by the ATP tournament, by the ATP officials, by local and, you know, by local uh, officials in order to host these events. You know, you're putting yourself at risk. You understand, as Tumani said, you, sh- you understand the risk you're undertaking when you agree to sign up for one of these events. You understand you have to adhere to the local guidelines regarding that that places COVID-19 safety and health protocols. And Sam Query did not do that. And there will be a punishment for that. Do I think he should be banned from the tour? Absolutely not. But it's going to be very, very fascinating, especially given the changing dynamics right now. Sam Querrey resigning from the ATP Player Council, joining up with Novak Djokovic. So it's not like there's a lot of you know fondness for him right now. I'm sure in ATP politics, but. What a moment. What a moment. 2020 never ceasing to amaze. And of course, it does also feel worth noting that just quickly, uh, again, one other storyline, and then I promise we're going to talk about the actual tennis that took place on Wednesday and Thursday. You know, there was a story or a tweet sent out by Craig Shapiro, who hosts the Under Review Tennis Podcast. And you know, he claimed he had a source where twenty people had tested positive for the coronavirus for COVID nineteen in Sardinia, and that they were going to have to cancel the tournament because obviously, when you have twenty players who have tested positive, uh, you can't continue an event. And you know, Fabio Fanini publicly testing positive, having to be withdrawn from that event. His doubles partner Lorenzo Musetti. You know, they played together the day before. You would think, okay, Musetti probably out of the event as well. Uh, and then you hear the number twenty, and you're like, oh my gosh. Uh, from Fonini, this is exactly what people were concerned about with the tournaments coming back, there was a collective freakout on tennis Twitter, but there was an eerie silence over the next couple of hours, and it was, kind, it was partially because A, you know, everyone was waiting for confirmation, they were waiting to hear an official statement from Sardinia uh, saying yes, this is what happened, X amount of players have tested positive, or this is how we're going to adjust the schedule moving forward, or we're not going to allow fans, all of these different things, but no one confirmed the story. And, you know, none of the big names, you know, nothing from Christopher Clary, nothing from Ben, nothing from Jose Morgado. Of course, we're all texting our various sources here, you know, trying to figure out, A, is this true? B, if true, what are they going to do? And, you know, it just ended up, unfortunately for Craig, it was not true. It was false. And it was, an, you know, an ill-timed piece of information to report. And we've talked about this before. If you are going to report that there are positive COVID tests ever, At any event, doesn't matter if it's tennis related, if you are going to just put into the world, hey, I heard X people are COVID positive, you better be fucking right. Like, there is no margin for error there. You do not get to screw around in the midst of a public, you know, health pandemic and a public health crisis and just play a game of speculation, Jones, saying, ooh, I'm hearing these people are testing positive. I'm hearing people, these people are testing positive. There are life and death consequences to these sorts of tweets because this is, you know, that that's not hyperbole. COVID-19, we've about over a million people dead across the globe. This is a deadly virus, and so if 20 people are testing positive at an event, you shut down the event, and you don't even think twice about it, and there was a collective panic. Why are they playing the event? Why haven't we heard anything? And look, do I know Craig perfectly well? I don't, but I have no ill will towards Craig. I have no doubt he was well-intent as well, well well-meaning, in sending that tweet. It's just... This is the problem nowadays. You tr- you chase followers, you chase retweets, you chase likes, and you're going to run with an ups- unsubstantiated rumor. And look, I didn't go to journalism school. I don't think it's gonna. It's you know, it's a little disingenuous for me to lecture Craig Shapiro on the ethics of journalism when you know I, it's still mortally, un- it's still and morally it's still a little bit unclear for me where exactly those lines fall. But Craig. Shot through them. It wasn't a passing through. It was a shot through them. And guess what? He knows that. And, you know, he deserves our support because uh, one bad moment does not neglect, you know, does not mean we should neglect all the good he does to help grow our sport, to help, you know, bring prominence to the game. But look, it's just unacceptable. He's taken a lot of heat today. I hope that heat stops because, again, he is a well intent person, but intended person, but you just can't have that. You just can't have that. It was an absolute blemish. And again, he knows that, so there's no need to continue to pile on. But I would just ask anyone who hears any rumor who listens to this podcast, please, you know, two source confirmation at a minimum. Uh, Let's try and get three or four if it's something that serious. Maybe let's even contact the tournament officials, ask for them to respond with an official statement before we run with the rumor like that. I know we're not supposed to do that anymore. I know it's supposed to be, oh, you have a story, publish the story. But uh, maybe we check our sources a little bit closer moving forward, because obviously, uh, we don't want anything like that to happen at all as well, you know, anything like that to happen at any other event uh, throughout the rest of this 2020 season. But speaking of this 2020 season. Let's talk about some of the tennis we saw on Wednesday and Thursday because obviously I'm recording this now 5.33 p.m. on Thursday on the East Coast. Uh, Most of the action done for the day. Again, it's five ATP events, two uh, 250s, one 500, two challengers. Let's start with the 500 event because we got some phenomenal results in the round of 16 today and we have our quarterfinal field, I believe, now set in St. Petersburg. You look at the results on the Day. Let's start with the big upset. Number one seed Daniil Medvedev knocked out by Riley Opelka, 2 6, 7 5, 6 4. You look in the stats in this match for both of these guys, just a clinic on the first serve. Opelka makes 68% of his first serves. He wins 79% of those first serve points for Daniil Medvedev, uh, makes 62% of his first serve points, wins 91% on that first serve, 40 of 44. You sometimes forget Daniil Medvedev 6 6 and can just, you know, Spike first serves down when he's in his rhythm, and of course it helps when you're playing Riley Opelka, but... You know, this is a match that featured uh, four total breaks of serves Opelka in this match. Seven of nine he saves on break points, a couple of them with just some ridiculous forehand sticks or this forehand slap or the forehand stretch volley he hit and just all these different moments. Opelka plays to win. Opelka plays his game style and we've talked about it. He's got such a more advanced skill set than John Isner did at his age, whether it's his ability to drive through returns or whether it's ability to drive through the backhand to hit the forehand. And now, you know, we've also talked about his serve can continue to get better. He's going to get better at hitting his spots. I think his serve is honestly going to have more action on it, more consistency. And in this match, 11 of 32 on second serve points, he's going to take more chances with that second serve as he develops both of them. Uh, but he did a really good job in this match, again, just holding on to those breaks and riding with them in sets 2 and 3. And look, he he goes down 5-2, I believe, uh, in that first set, completely tanked that last service game to give Medvedev the 6-2 first set. But it's a credit to Opelka that he's able to just mentally throw a set like that out of the window and bounce back and get the one break of serves he needs in both sets 2 and 3 to win this match 2-6-7-5-6-4. And again, for Opelka... So it's 4-5, 30-40. Medvedev, I think, honestly, makes a first serve. Opelka just kind of sticks it back with a drive-slice return. Medvedev goes cross-court forehand, actually opens up a lot of court for himself. A great ball. And then Riley Opelka just does what he does, the seven-footer on the move, running slap cross-court forehand, and it wins him the match. I mean, it was similar on the set point in set number two, 6-5, 40-30, Opelka hits a big serve, Medvedev, you know, gets a, and then hits a plus-one ball to move forward, Medvedev gets a really good look and hits an exceptional passing shot, and Opelka uses his size, his seven-foot frame, he's on top of the net, he just gets his forehand volley on it, incredible cross-court drop shot, and like that, it's a set-up peace and you know, one set all for Riley Opelka. It's just tough to stare down that barrel because you know how much pressure he's going to put on you with his serve. You know it's just going to be relentless plus one tennis. You know it's going to be pretty difficult for you to find a rhythm as a groundstroker. And of course, for Neil Medvedev, his game so predicated on finding rhythm. It's always difficult against Opelka because of how early he takes shots, how big he hits the ball. And look, indoor hard courts, Riley Opelka can beat anyone in the world on any given day. You put a seven-footer inside I don't even care if it's a clay court, if it's grass court, if it's a hard court, they've got a shot to win because conditions are so good for their serve. But for Riley Opelka, again, two of four on break point chances. You know, Medvedev the only winning four points on the Medvedev first serve that's not great but you know he holds Medvedev to 16 of 27 on second serve points again he only wins 15 points on return during the day you look overall for him that means he's only winning 21 percent of his return points and by the way in this match Daniil Medvedev 91 total points to Opelka 79 but guess what Winning ugly is half the battle. Winning, you know, doing enough to get the victory, that's what you have to do to reach the upper echelons of the professional tennis game, of men's professional tennis. And, you know, I got into this discussion today on Tennis Twitter with Eric Johansson, with Paul Timmons, two of the best, on Tennis Twitter. And, you know, we're going back and forth. Eric saying, I don't really like Opelka's, you know, I, I, he's saying he doesn't see the slam upside that I may see. And I point to, you know, he points to the statistics. Opelka, one of the worst returners by stats, on the ATP tour, but then you look at things more specific. You go to Tennis Abstract. You look at his tiebreaker percentage. You look at his break point conversion percentage rate, and how that's better than John Isner's. And how you know once the serve catches up to the other skills, he's gonna he's obviously gonna have even more success at tiebreakers as his career uh, uh, during tiebreakers as his career goes on, but. Simply put, this guy can just do enough. He tanks return games. He conserves his energy. But when he is focused, when he is locked in, I think he is a really good returner. And I continue to say it. 2024-2025 Wimbledon. I think it's going to be one of those two seasons that Riley Opelka just goes on this two-week tear. Just the serve clicks. Everything matches up perfectly. And he wins a Grand Slam title. I think he's the American guy right now with the greatest potential to do that. And so again, this it's only one match, but indoor hardcourt's really good win for him. Over an informed Medvedev, who obviously you win ninety one percent of your first serve points, you can win you should win that match ninety nine percent of the time. And Medvedev probably should have won this one. You saw him destroy a racket after the match. But Riley Opelka, really, really good performance. Hard to be anything but impressed with his victory today. And, of course, now we have a really fun set of quarterfinals, as I mentioned, because Opelka, not the only winner on the day in terms of the straight set performances. uh, We had Denis Shapovalov knocking off Ilya Ivashka, 6-1, 6-4. That was a great win. Milos Raonic, good win over Sasha Bublik, 6-3, 6-2. The last thing you want to give Sasha Bublik in the world is momentum. Uh, Raonic did a really good job playing plus one tennis. Thing. Focus from start to finish, just not giving Bublik a chance to assert himself, get to play creatively in this match. So again, a big credit to Milos Raonic, high level of play in this one. And then, of course, we had a couple of three-set battles on the day. Now, a couple of these matches happened yesterday, but worth noting, Cam Norrie, uh, Stan Wawrinka, and their wins on three sets over Donsko and Kasimenevich, they have both looked great this week. Borna Chorich, really good win over Roman Cefilian, who I've mentioned. it would have been one of my favorite next-gen prospects five years ago. It's just a lot of injuries he's dealt with, but a sneaky, really fun match for me. I should also say Hachinov, three-set winner over Karatsev, who just didn't have enough left in the tank by the end. But Andre Rublev versus Hugo Umber. Objectively, I would say these are two of the five best next-gen performers during this 2020 season. Umber, a title winner before play stopped earlier in the year. He obviously uh, continued to impress at the U.S. Open in Cincy. He continues to be really, really solid. But, man... You can just see it in Andre Rublev's face. So he loses that first set 6-4 to Umber. He goes down 40-love in Umber's first service game to kick off the next set. Um he breaks Umber, for a one 0 lead. You can see the reaction on his face. He gets locked in in a way. Just right now Andre Rublev refuses to lose, and I've made the case before, so I'm not going to say it again, but I will say his backhand gets better and better. It's no longer a weakness. I mean, he it's not as strong as his forehand, but it's certainly not a weakness. His becomes more and more effective. Again, the first serve percentage, a little Jared Donaldson-esque, and then sometimes it's closer to 50% than it is to 60%. Uh, But Andre Rublev making the leap right now. This is a guy who will spend the majority, I would say, of the 2020s decade, at a minimum, inside the top 10 of the ATP rankings, and, you know, now we get a really fun set of quarterfinal matches in St. Petersburg, and if I told all of you fans, you look at these quarterfinals, that at this ATP 500, given, of course, it is a global pandemic, and we're not going to get to see all of our favorite players all the time, but if I would have told you, you get Opelka-Choric for one quarterfinal, you get Hachinov rayonich for the other, Nori versus Rublev, and then Wavrinka versus Shapovalov, I think you'd be pretty satisfied. I know I am satisfied, and so, of course, very much looking forward to this championship weekend, to seeing the way the quarterfinal action unfolds. I... Everything I've said about Andre Rublev, by the way, could apply to Denis Shapovalov, who just very quietly, really since the end of last year, really since he started his partnership with Mikhail Yusny, has just gotten better and better, more and more consistent, more and more sure in the way he wants to play uh, on court. And obviously, we saw him have a really successful run at both Grand Slams, have opportunities. Well, you know, at the French Open, I suppose he loses that fifth round, uh, fifth set to Carbeas Hispania, but that was a match he very much could have won. Of course, he made his first Grand Slam quarterfinal at the U.S. Open and very much could have beaten Pablo Carreño Busta, but... You know, if you're telling me I get the Canadian indoor hard courts, always, as a man of the north, as a man whose state of original residence shares a border with Canada, uh, let me just say, you put us on indoor hard courts, we're going to be better than our contemporaries, because that's where we spent most of our time growing up, Uh, and obviously Shapovalov, I don't need to tell you about the power he possesses, but that's going to be a really fun championship weekend in St. Petersburg. Let's move quickly now to Cologne, Sardinia, talk about some of these challengers, because again, I know the big big story of the day is really the things happening, not on the court, but off the court right now, but you look in Colonia, a couple of, uh, another Canadian rocking and rolling, FAA, really good win for him, 4-1 over Laxanin, we had Alex Virev knocking off for Dasco 4-1 you always forget Alex Virev, 6-6 six foot six, indoor hard courts, you let him serve again, indoor hard courts for Virev's game, I don't care who he's playing, that serve's going to win him a lot of matches uh, we did have a couple of upsets on the day, Dennis Novak, 3-4 for win over Benoit pair, though honestly, a Benoit pair in 2020 is less of an upset, I would say, than something we can all expect to see coming, and then you know, the other upset, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, who's obviously played so well of late, uh, he knocks out Marin Cilic in three sets, and you know, for him, it was just making this match physical, and you know, Cilic yesterday got pushed to the brink by Marcos Girón, or maybe that was two days ago, that was another three-set match. I thought Davidovich Fokina did very similar things, and for Marin Cilic, I hate to say it, but we're clearly on the back eighth of his, you know, back last two holes, last three holes of his career, to make a golf analogy, um, you know, it's just, you can make a match physical. If you get him stretched, you get him to the outer thirds, you make that extra ball. The The six foot six frame, you know, he used to have a little Medvedev in him in that he would track down that extra ball and that he was a sneaky good mover for someone with his size and his length. Uh, very similar to maybe, honestly, a Hubie Hercats, who was a straight set winner on the day. Uh, but obviously, Chilich just not always able to hit that gear anymore. And Davidovich, Fokina, I mean. He's only got one gear, and it's, you know, he's going 90 miles per hour at all times. And that's half the fun of watching him play. So that's a great victory for him. And again, you know, some of the other victors on the day: Hubi Herkatz over Misha Zira, Verdou Elbot, three-set win over Oscar Ota. And then a really fun match between Lloyd Harris and Steve Johnson. Stevie J up a break through most of that first set, really. Harris able to get it back at the end. He takes two tiebreakers over Johnson, 7-6-7-6. I've said it before with. That serve that body. Lloyd Harris is the definition of your modern-day player. He's going to spend, I think, a bunch of time in the top 75, top 60 during his career. Now, do I think he's going to advance much higher than that? Do I think he's going to be a top 30 player? No, probably not. I think he's a little bit limited with the ground strokes. Yeah, he can attack, but it's a very passable player. And obviously for Steve Johnson, he wants to be doing the attacking. He doesn't want to be hitting passing shots the whole time. But Lloyd Harris has got a lot of game, folks. And he absolutely deserves to be in this quarterfinal here in Colonia, and again, you look at the quarterfinals and what the action will look like this weekend. Uh, Alex Vera versus Lloyd Harris quarterfinal, that's very fun. Dennis Novak versus Davidovich Fokina, sign me up for that. Radu Elbott versus FAA, hello. And then, of course, Hubi Hercats taking on Roberto Bautista Agut who knocked off Jill Simone uh, in straight sets, despite Jill Simone have the opportunity to serve for that match in straights. So again, that's your action in Colonia in Sardinia. The quarterfinals are set as well, and it should be, I keep saying this, but it's crazy how many players we have playing at this point of the season, of course, for so many of them, and you see a common theme, all of these players, you know, you don't have the Djokovic's of the world out there, you have these players who are hungry, who are still trying to establish themselves, whether it be in the top 100, top 50, top 20, all of these players at different points of their journey, or players who... We're just finding themselves riding some incredible momentum. And I think that's the story of this tournament in Sardinia, because you look at some of the quarterfinalists, none of our seeds, except for Albert Ramos Vinolez, end up making the quarterfinals. And of course the number one seed was a lucky loser in this event. But you know, you look at the upsets on the day. Laszlo 7-5 over the deuce, Dusan Maljevic. I don't think that's gonna shock anyone. Match number two, Janik Hanifman, 2-1 over Kasparud. We talked about Hanifman. He made the finals uh, of, not Hamburg, but of, uh, what was the other warm-up? Not Hamburg. I can see it. It's another German. T- Kasmenovich won it. Anyways, he made the final at the ATP Tour. He won a challenger in the lead-up to this during this August restart. He's been incredible. And, you know, 2-1, and one, is that the score you expected against Kasparud? Absolutely not. But, to see him win that match, that's why it was a stay away yesterday by every definition. Jona Hanifman right now, with how explosive his game is on the dirt, with how well he's playing, how confident he's playing, uh, it doesn't surprise me to see him get that win. And for Kasparud, so many matches on the body over the past couple of weeks. This is not a, ooh, do we have to re-examine Kasparud? Should we rethink everything about him? No, absolutely not. This just has to do with Hanifman, the pressure he puts on you, the drop shots, the serving and volleying, all of the above. That's a great match from Janik who just didn't let Casper find his rhythm. Uh, some of the other winners, again, Yuri Vesely, similar, did not find let Lorenzo Senegal find his rhythm. He gets a three-set win. Federico Del Bonas, three-set win over Andahar. He continues his momentum from the semifinals he made last week at the challenger level. Uh, Danilo Petrovic, the lucky loser, a straight set win for him over Carbeas Benia. And then, Two Italian winners, Marco Cecchinato, who has found his form here during this clay court portion of 2020. Really nice 7-6, 6-4 win over Tommy Paul. And then Lorenzo Musetti, 6-2, 6-1 over uh, Andrea Pellegrino. You talk about for Musetti, the talented 2002er. He's the first player born in 2002 to reach an ATP quarterfinal. Of course, you look at the names of company he joined since 1996, Hachinov, Zverev, Stefan Kozlov, which I'm not ready to talk about yet, Denis Shapovalov, FAA, Yannick Sinner, and now Lorenzo Musetti. I would say that's pretty nice company to be keeping if you are the young Musetti who, of course, we have talked about so frequently over these past couple of weeks. He continues to rock and roll, and now you look at the draw here in Sardinia. Again, it's wide open. Lots of seeds eliminated. Petrovic versus Delbonis, the top half. Uh, Ramos, Vinoles, Cecinato, Musetti versus Yannick Hanifman. That's going to be delightful. And then Yuri Vesley versus Laszlo Jure So, of course, that's the action at the 250 level in Sardinia. Of course, we will be talking about that all weekend long. And we do have a couple of other challengers going on this week as well, just to quickly uh, go through those at the... Uh, we talked about it a little bit yesterday, but but in Lisbon, Portugal, uh, we had Nuno Borges not have a great win over Demir Zumher. Unfortunately, his run ends as he is knocked off by Guillermo Clizar. But you look at the quarterfinals there, Munar versus Muller, Clizar versus Gao uh, Kuzmanov versus GNSC Popko versus Sosa, opportunity for some really great tennis. And then, of course, in Alicante, Spain, you've got Martinez versus Machak, You've got uh, Morales versus Vukic, Carlos Alcaraz, really good three-set win for him today. Against Daniel Galan. He's going to take on the informed one, Pablo Vikovich. And then, of course, Steve Diaz taking on Mario Velia Martinez. So it's going to be a really exciting week of uh, exciting weekend, excuse me, of championship tennis. Of course, as always, if you have missed any of the action, highly recommend you go check out our website, crackrackets.com, whether you want to hear further recaps on the 2020 French Open. You want to hear the awards Jamie and I gave out things such as the Nicolas Basilis Vili Award for Least Surprising Upset, the Sarah. Rani Award for shaky serving. That and more. Be sure to go check out the Great Shot podcast feed or go check out all of those awards on video on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. Of course, we will be rocking and rolling with you all week long, all weekend long through these championship ATP action. Uh, as I mentioned, Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times is going to be joining me tomorrow to map out our biggest storylines remaining in this 2020 season. So, of course, be on the lookout for that podcast. And as always, like, rate, subscribe review to this podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews, and Inside Out Podcast. Be sure to share them with your friends as well. And if you need those more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me, I'm at Pod. Shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Flinger and Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out, of course, as well to our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use the promo code CR15. Go to Aerobar.com. Use that promo code cracked fifteen. One last thing I want to say: shout out to the following NCAA host sites over the over these next couple of years. D one men and women going to Orlando in twenty twenty one. In twenty twenty two, they're going to Champaign In twenty three, they're going to try and do the D one, D two, D three men's and women's event. All in Orlando. I think that's something we can get excited about. Of course, then they go to Oklahoma State. Great to see them get a tournament after this year's was canceled. Then in 25, they'll be at Baylor. 26, they will be down in Georgia. God willing, our cracked Rackets teams will be at all of those events. But with that in mind, and again, shout out to Parsa, by the way, for that little bit of information. But with that in mind, for our wonderful friends at Midwest Sports and airbar Bar, our super producers, Max Flegner and Daniel Westhoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Grusk, and you know what we say. That's the break, and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.